also realised that there are people of all ages and all nationalities reading Murdoch and being influenced by her. And I was struck by two pieces that came up just last week on the 5th of February, one from Italy. Seems like I've always been reading one novel or other of Dame Murdoch's novels. I've read some as many as half a dozen times. She's deeply influenced my teaching and thinking over the years. I've collected philosophically pregnant excerpts along the way and have thought of putting out a kind of philosophical anthology of her novels. I think her best philosophy is embedded in her novels rather than her explicitly philosophical writing, with the possible exception of her early essay, Sovereignty of the Good. Maybe there's one out there already. I too share the thought that she, more than anyone, perhaps other than Proust, is able to flesh out the nuances of what appears to be a surprisingly common matrix of inner thought, which, if we're willing to do the work of slowing it all down, we can digest and be nourished by. I feel satisfied with Murdoch in the way a religious person might, after years of struggling with this or that belief, give it all up suddenly understanding that it is precisely that that is the, pre is the essential precondition for faith. There's so many thoughts in that passage. I'm fascinated by that idea at the end of, of giving up belief as, as the precondition for faith. Fascinated by the connection with Proust, by this wanting to have a sort of philosophical anthology. And almost immediately, somebody, I don't know these people at all, somebody from Turkey came back. How well you have put it, starting from early college years till present, I've been a devoted reader of Iris Murdoch and continue to be so. I regret not having written a note to her, saying how grateful I am to have enjoyed and loved the way she constructed her novels, how she influenced my understanding of art and the psychoanalytic angle she introduced to the novel. I've understood her quest for spirituality and the ultimate question of how to be good. I don't have a philosophy background, though I did read and enjoyed The Sovereignty of Good and could follow it, but just that. I hadn't thought of comparing her to Proust, which is very appropriate, especially for those whose recognition of the philosophical subtext is not strong, a book as the one you suggest would be appreciated, leading readers to Iris Murdoch's truth and beauty that runs the universe. So this conversation is going from people we've never met around the world, from Turkey, from Italy, and other people chip in with their thoughts. So it's, it's much deeper than just a sort of frivolous Facebook in, in, in exchange there. And um, I love the fact that this conversation is, is opened up by, by social media and it's going on around the world. And this year, obviously, we've been planning, all of us, well, for a long time, actually, and before, the, before everything moved to Chichester and I were thinking about 2019 many years ago, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, we were. And thinking we, we must really celebrate this, this centenary year. But it's been wonderful to find that we're not alone, and there are people who don't know about us and that we don't know about making things happen. In January, the New York Review of Books kicked off with a lovely article from somebody who read Murdoch as a child and was very influenced by her. In February, the Paris Review did a beautiful piece on food in the sea the sea and we were surprised to find these things coming out. Cambridge is, is doing an Iris Murdoch Day. In Cambridge, she's not, she was at Newnham for a year, but she's not very associated with Cambridge, and they're choosing to celebrate her. And the published SAR and the radio and the BBC, all sorts of things are coming together for this. So there's lots of people trying to celebrate today. And there's lots of other events happening. Um, Anne Post in Ireland are bringing out an Iris Murdoch stamp to celebrate her birthday, which is really rather splendid that she's going to be commemorated on a stamp. And we'd like to get a blue plaque at some point in the future. People have to have been dead for 20 years before you can have a blue plaque. So now is the time that we're beginning to think about this. And they give you a form to fill in, some of which is quite simple. 
But the really difficult love of it is justify why this person should have a big plaque put up for them, why are they important enough to our history, our culture, and we're going to have to put our heads together <laughs> and really sort of get this into a, a kernel. And I'd like today to help us to toss around together and work out why should Iris Murdoch be remembered and valued and celebrated? And how can we communicate that to the rest of the world that doesn't know about Iris Murdoch? So I hope you can help us with that project during our discussions today. Thank you, Francis. Thank you. Margaret, you want to share your initial thoughts? I, I, I absolutely resonate with everything that um, Francis has said. And I think uh, it brings out the almost um, universal appeal of Murdoch's work, actually, and the fact that actually um, embedded within it is this idea of the search for goodness, um, which is, again, a universal search. And um, I think this is something that she portrays so well in her novels, but she portrayed it in a very nuanced way, which um, suggested that actually that is not an easy road to follow. So I think this is something that people can um, take in and on board within their own experience the fact that, you know, um, goodness is not easily acquired or obtained, if you like, and that there are um, difficulties along the way. And a lot of her characters experience those difficulties. Um, but si similarly, there are many characters who have a sort of um, natural kind of goodness, if you like, um, and uh, that's what um, Elizabeth Dipples described as uh, Murdoch's uh, characters of the good, that they have a natural grace and goodness about them. So I think all these themes are really important, and that's why as people pick up her novels and read them, yes, as entertaining, um, but entertainment of a very serious kind, um, which resonates with our own deepest aspirations as human beings. Mm. Yes, um, what, what is, well, I'm thinking about these, how many words are we going to have to, <laughs> like a hundred words we're going to have to have to say why. Uh, okay, how about that? Okay, am I, am I hearable now? Is that better? Okay. Um, why? Do so many people all over the world go back to these novels, read them, and go back to them? I taught Iris Murdoch's novels for 25 years, and I can say, quite honestly, I have seen how she changes people's lives. There's two former students here. Um, because she makes them think differently about things. When I was teaching her, I would, um, at one point, take in um, a, an agony aunt column from a psychologies magazine and give it out and say to the student, do you think this is good advice? How do you make yourself happy? Because it's all about me. I cannot make other people happy until I am happy myself. So this is me. It's all about me, me, me. And I'd say, you know, we'll write down your little responses and collect them in. And at the end of the teaching year, I would give them back. And the students would say, oh my God. Oh my God. How could I have been that self-centred. I mean, Iris Murdoch's philosophy is about, or her novels are about, how to deal with terrible suffering, how to not your pain, pass your pain on. Are you really free? Are the decisions that you're going to make make you happy and make other people totally miserable? Is someone going to end up 
desperately unhappy because of what you decide to do, which is best for you. So the issues in the book, um, I mean, what it means to love another human being. How do you deal with suffering? How do you actually negotiate really difficult situations in your life? So while you have what Francis has talked about, you've got this whole area of Murdoch scholarship that's talking about Proust, about Shakespeare. The lovely thing about teaching is that anybody who's got an interest in this room and you want to take it to Iris Murdoch, you can write about it. You like Shakespeare, you like Muriel Spark, you like nature and literature, you like Pam, whatever, you know, anything that you want to talk about. Um, it's there, they're so rich, and she tells a wonderful story. Um, the, the complexity of the psychological analysis of her characters, the most common things that students would say after le learning and teach, uh, having been taught the novels, how can she know so much about me? So why, it, it's these two layers of, of interpretation and reception of the novel. Um, I got mildly told off when I gave a talk at the conference here last year, last September, uh, because I had said teaching Iris Murdoch um, is accessible, her philosophy is accessible. That was interpreted as saying it was easy. I didn't mean to suggest it's easy. You can have the finest philosophers in the world looking at her philosophy and getting a great deal out of it. You can have a 19-year-old student who's going through a bit of a bad time in their life and they can come away having had their lives changed by reading Iris Murdoch. So for me, it's that um, mix between a deeply intellectual, philosophical novelist and a writer who grips you the minute. I mean, I'm just rereading the novels now because I'm not reading for any philosophical ideas. I'm not reading because I'm looking for the way she's using the visual arts. I'm not looking for the way she's using any philosophical ideas at all or morality. I'm just reading because I thought, I haven't read these books now for years. It's time to go back. And I'm utterly gripped. I'm so looking forward to going to bed. I go to bed about 20 <laughs> minutes earlier. Um, and I take my hot water bottle <coughs> and a cup of tea. And I'm loving, uh, I'm loving the novels. And I'm loving them in completely different ways. And I think as they're shapeshifters. There's a novel for when you're in your 20s. There's a novel for when you're in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s and your 60s, and it might be the same novel. Because as new generations are coming to Murdoch's work, they're finding different things in it. And I would argue that she's a novelist more appropriate to the 21st century than she was to the 20th. Gender fluidity. She didn't think monogamy was workable as a way to, to conduct society. Mental issues in the young. Juvenile delinquency, if anybody's out there looking for a PhD thesis. Juvenile delinquency, how the juvenile delinquent mind is created, what effects uh, on that, on the young people are turning them into bad members of society. So anyway, I could, I want, I'm stopping. No, it's fine. <laughs> I could go on. I mean, I, I just think that, um, as I said, they're shapeshifters. Whatever you take to them, whatever problem in your life, whatever problems are going in society, Think of beautiful Joe in um, Henry and Cato, who slashes with a knife, one of these knives that are on the television all the time that kids are carrying with them. Um, look at the psychological complexity of that character and you learn something about knife crime and what pushes people, what pushes these young men into committing these crimes. 
And interestingly, parenting. There's another PhD thesis, bad parenting. Um, she understood, although she never had children, uh, if, you have, if you bring children into the world, you have a responsibility to them. And many of Iris Murdoch's characters Im immersed in their own love life and their own erotic obsessions um, and, and not, you know, um, paying enough attention to their children. So a lot of the novels, I mean, the sandcastle in terms of mental issues in young people. Uh, the Italian Girl, I never got that book. I really thought this is just not the book for me. You go back to it now in the 21st century, these taboo sexual subjects that couldn't be overtly talked about in the late 20th century, it's all there covertly hidden in the myth, the imagery, the symbolism, the characters, it's all there. But I never saw it. I read, I read it again recently and thought, good God, um, you know, how could I miss, how could I miss that? And, and, yeah, I think that's, that's a common um, rereading of Murdoch. You go back, if you haven't read them for quite a while, and you go back and read them in the light of the Me Too movement or um, other, of, yeah. other movements of that nature. Yeah. And you think how abusive, the, the, you know, some of these relationships and how covertly she actually does, she does write these, yeah. write these into, into her works. But, you know, it's my students who've been, you know, uh, sort of questioning my interpretation of the novels, teaching under the net. Um, and I said, you know, well, we're going to talk about the issues of freedom, her quarrel with existentialism, and then, uh, you know, what do you think of Jake Donahue, the main character? Because he's a bit of Jack the Lad, but, you know, we've always dread him as, okay, really, not the student, not the Me Too generation. He's a creep. <laughs> really? Um, you, let's go and look, look at that bit where he throws Anna on the floor in the judo hold. He'd be had up for sexual harassment now, so somebody would think, okay, maybe we'll go back and look at these games. And as a result of that, um, I gave a paper here on, on how those new generations of students reading that text has completely transformed. I think there's room now, and I think Miles yeah. is on to this, a new feminist reading of Iris Murdoch has to be undertaken now, I think quite urgently. Over to you on that. Good, job. Good, Good job, you're doing it. Um, quite early days. But yeah, I mean, and, and looking at the, um, the interview that she uh, undertook with the, the Icelandic um, journalist in the 1980s, where she actually, one of the first times she, she actually explores her ideas of feminism and, and feminism and says that although she doesn't overtly put her feminism into the novels, and she, she's looking for more, for more about equality, she's looking about um, and, and the diversity of responses, which is why she didn't want to tie herself into those kind of. Um, I suppose quite um, militant second wave. Uh, second wave. Yeah, she, she also says in that in, you know interview that um, if you write realism, if you write about, if you observe the world really closely, and you write about that world, you don't have to necessarily put issues of feminism or politics in there. They will be there mm -hmm. yeah. because you're writing about it. So she, you know, when she says, well, I'm, I'm, I don't want to put my philosophy into the novel, I don't want to put my feminist ideas into the novel, um, I mean, it's because she didn't want to be a, an overtly didactic writer. She didn't want to be there wagging the finger. But if you look, and it doesn't have to be her views, but those, Jake's uh, nastiness and Jake's rather warped perception of women is clearly visible, but it doesn't have to necessarily come from her attempt to be didactic and sure. illustrated. So it's, it's interesting. I, I think that you can tie into that as well something that um, 
Iris Murdoch said uh, she described herself as a phenomenologist reading her, her novels and she said um, the novelist proper, can you all hear me, sorry, mm -hmm. the novelist proper is a sort of phenomenologist. He, is, he has always been what the very latest philosophers claim to be, a describer rather than explainer and in consequence he has often anticipated philosophical discoveries and I think that's quite an interesting mm -hmm. thing that kind yes. of you know, yeah. what, what you've been saying there. Oh, did you want to pick up something there? I was just thinking, you were saying how it changes all the time. I did my PhD at Kingston under Anne and spent 10 years basically. I, I'd been reading Murdoch since I was a teenager, but I spent 10 years doing nothing but reading Murdoch and about Murdoch. And I had this terrible fear that one day I'd wake up and it would all have gone to dust and ashes. And I think, <laughs> why am I doing this? She's a complete waste of time. She's rubbish. It never happened. I got very tired sometimes of writing and rewriting things, and I got tired of the critical work on her, but every single time I went back to an Iris Murdoch text, whether it was a novel or the philosophy, I was gripped again. And I must have read all the novels seven or eight times now, some of them more, and I laugh again. They are so witty, so funny, and they do bring something new every time. And this is, she seems to be inexhaustible in that way, as Shakespeare is. Yes, um, that yes. when you go back, it's different. It doesn't die on you. Whereas other writers who I've really enjoyed the first time, strangely enough, her first, the first critical book on Iris Murdoch was written by the n novelist A.S. Byatt. And it's, it's a good critical book. And I really enjoyed A.S. Byatt's novels the first time I read them. And I went back to them, and I can't read them again. No. They've, they've just yeah. died on me. But <laughs> Murdoch never has somehow. She mm. seems to have this freshness, some kind of spring of vitality in life. I, I think um, she can be uneven mm. as a writer. <laughs> um, I think that going back to her now not looking for anything, I've noticed, as Frances says, she's funny, I remember teaching a class of mature students. Uh, we didn't have a, a lecture theatre or a room, so we all sat on the floor uh, drinking red wine. You could do those things in those days. We, we all sat around... <laughs> discussing the novels and and then one of the students said to me Anne it, it's funny the, the funny books and I'm thinking good god funny funny <laughs> and, and you do the, the, the humor is is emerging a lot more now uh, than, than it ever did for me but also her unevenness there there are some sections of writing and I think actually this is poor writing this, this is not that brilliant and then you get these wonderful lyrical flourishes. Um, there's one in the Black Prince. Uh, anybody who's heard me speak before knows my favourite in, in The Nice and the Good, the wonderful meditation on jealousy. We are not good people. All we can do is to constantly go back. She falls into poetry, pure poetry, when Bradley Pearson says his farewell to the young woman that, whom I believe he loved deeply. Um, you know, those moments, and they take your breath away. And I'd never noticed before when Cato goes back to his family after, after he's decided that he's not going to become, he's not going to stay in the priesthood and he's lost his faith and he sits on the bed and his sister says to him, um, recite something from the Latin mass for me. And he says, I can't do that, but I'll transform it. And he says, may the blessing of the peace of the God. Oh. And it just gives you the goosebumps. But there are those passages that are stilted, as if she can't quite get going. But, so, the, the question there is, why didn't she write less and write, write better? <laughs>
You know, why didn't she take just a bit more time, allow herself to be edited? She would never let any editors do anything to the novels. And I've started getting a little bit more cross with her than I ever had before. <laughs> and thinking, oh, for God's sake, you know, a good editor would have, would have pulled you up on that. And then I'm thinking, is she taking us into the mind of a character who is impoverished in their thinking? Are these passages with these stilted sentences, this, the, 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 the richness of her dialogue, the richness of her language falls away? And I think, well, are we, um, is this my failing now? Am I not quite getting what she's trying to do? And I mean, the point of saying all that is that they are a bottomless pit of interest from wherever that interest comes. Um, and I think I need to go back now and, and think Paula and I were talking about this earlier. Think again about, is this variation deliberate? Is it there for a philosophical reason, for an, a, a psychological reason that we're learning more about characters, the way, the way people think? Or uh, had she had too many glasses of wine? <laughs> didn't write well, you know. Um, but yes, and I would say um, she's gri gripping me in ways that she's never gripped me before. She's irritating me a little bit in ways she's never irritated me before, but she never puts me off the novels. I'm still back there. She'd never get away with it now. Um, any writer writing no. now would have to be edited yes. and yes. they have to jump through a lot of hoops. They have to do a lot of book signings and appear on television and things that mm -hmm. she didn't have to do. Mm -hmm. And which, in fact, Doris Lessing, when she got the Nobel Peace Prize, said it's a grave mistake because the kind of person who makes a really good novelist tends to want to spend a lot of time alone in a room quietly and in their own mind which is peopled with their imagination mm. and being forced out <coughs> into public encounters really sort of kills that off and um, it's not good for the novel but the reason that she got away with it then and she could take more or less sort of bags of badly typed literally carry bags of badly typed script into chatter and windows and it was sorted out for her was that she sold. Mm. She sold massively and fantastically. I mean, she really was a huge... That She was on all the airport bookstalls. It was what people read on the beach on holiday. And for a long time, she was sort of everybody's author. And I think that's something that it's important to keep, that we don't hive her off into being a sort of little academic enclave, mm -hmm. but we keep yeah. the accessibility. And I think that's what possibly what Winter trying to do, changing the covers with the new... I'm glad you mentioned that because oh, we have yeah. got the new covers. Um, like so these these, yeah, these new covers yes. are for um, uh, September and July. You might like them, you might hate them, but here they are. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's if we if so the, these apparent so according to uh, Penguin who um, produced vintage classics, these are the six best-selling titles at the moment. Um, the Sea, the Sea, and the Bell sell very well indeed. Um, oh, the, 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 I know, it's yeah. surprising. Um, the other four sell less, and then uh, obviously she wrote 26, so the other 20 sell um, less than those. Um, I, and what I'd like to do, I suppose, is um, to take us back about 20 or 30 years, because I, I was reading some obituaries last night um, in advance of this, and, and in The Guardian, in The Independent, in The Times, rap, rhapsodising about um, her work, saying that she's not the heir to George Eliot, but she's the heir to Dostoevsky, in The Guardian, um, people tying her into Jane Austen, tying her into the 19th century tradition, which she would have loved. And of course, in the, in the 70s and 80s, when she was at her peak, she really was experiencing fantastic reviews. Then they dropped off a little bit in the 80s and 90s, perhaps as the books got longer and perhaps a little bit more uh, variable. I think that would be, be fair enough to say. Yeah. But, then on the, uh, but then 20 years ago, when she died, 
the the uh, the, the riches that I, I've read um, four or five from the broadsheets were all you know a, a hugely positive, not just about her fiction but about her philosophy and, and saying that there, there there are at least a corpus of six or seven novels which will, we will be um, A. N. Wilson says we'll be reading in fifty or sixty years' time. And I wonder what um, obviously um, your memories of um, of her death and and then the critical reception since then. If you'd like to share any of those ideas. <laughs> I was just wondering, maybe maybe you could collate some of the obituaries and put that into the blue plaque application and say, look, all these people. You are allowed to put in documentation, so that's a good that's, thought. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Documentation. Yeah. Yes. She'd always wanted one of her books to be made into a good film. Um, a severed head was made into a film. I don't know if anybody's seen that. It was awful. She <laughs> cried. I mean, she hated it. And it, it really isn't very good. Um, and the, the book I'm rereading at the moment is A Fairly Honourable Defeat. And do you know what struck me about this? I mean, does anybody remember how much dialogue? It, it's, it's a huge amount of dialogue. And then these little sort of, uh, you know, internal dialogue, the psychic narration that comes in. And I wondered if she'd not written that book specifically thinking, this is the one to be made into yeah. a film. It's a great novel. It is. I'm, Absolutely. I'm thoroughly it's enjoying it. It's in my top five. It's in my top five now. Good. Yeah. Very great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm surprised to see the sound council up yeah. there. Uh, this is the one that the students stopped my seminar on. Uh, I was going to teach um, portraiture. The representation of the human form in literature and art. That was the topic of my discussion for that day. And I went in, and one of the students from the back of the class said, those kids are weird. Those kids are really weird. I said, yeah, I know the kids are weird, but we're just talking about portraiture today. Those kids, you know, did they really slit their eyelids and cry tears of blood? I think you were there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay, um, you know, you want to talk about Felicity and we'll talk about those, those characters. And, and then we, I said, I can't even remember where she ends up. And uh, we went and read the end and poor little 13-year-old girl is on the stairs and you can hear the hiss of the gas in the oven, in the kitchen. Her mother, who's ignoring her completely, just making a cup of tea. And we all sort of said, oh, you know, she's going to commit suicide. So... I think you, you, the point of this story, there's a point. I know. I know. You're getting to <laughs> I, it. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, about the change in the, in the reception, and I think what needs to happen now is that literary critics who are writing about the novels need to go out to the margins of the novels. Mm. And we've done the philosophy, we've, we've done Shakespeare, we've done Proust, you know, we, we know a lot about that. I think more social realism, political, mm. and more criticism that's linking her to society and what's happening. And I think that's where literary criticism probably yeah. needs to show. I totally agree with what you've said there, but I want to stand up for the fact that there hasn't been enough done on Proust. Oh, well, no. <laughs> I, I mentioned Proust yes. because, you know, she, she is yeah. one of the greatest writers ever on obsession yeah. and yeah. jealousy and controlling behaviour in love. And th that's a tradition that comes from Proust, Charles Swan with a debt. And it also has affected a, a Turkish writer called Orhan Pamuk, whose books like the Museum of Innocence are entirely about this obsessional 
love and this jealousy and the way it takes over life and this exploration of the psyche. Sorry, I'm hoarse trying to shout out to the back of the room. Um, th this exploration of the psychology of jealousy, I want to trace yes, that yes. from Proust down through those two. There's, yeah. there's links there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mitch, you, yeah. Sorry, yeah. No, I was just wanting to pick up yeah. on, on what Anne was saying, really, because I think mm. one of the criticisms that was levelled at Murdoch in the past was that... Um, her characters lived within a fairly restrictive yeah. socioeconomic yeah. Um, pool. Mm. Um, you know, they tended to speak <coughs> with rather sort of upper middle class um, people who had, you know, a fairly high level professional jobs. I mean, there, there were other aspects drawn in, and, and Anne has mentioned Beautiful Joe and so on. So, so there were other, um, if you like, contributions from the other end of the socioeconomic <coughs> scale. But I think. Um, you know, it was a criticism that was levelled at her work that, mm. you know, mm. as opposed to perhaps, I don't know, Dickens or what yes. have you, there yes. wasn't the range yes. there yeah. that you might expect or hope for. But having said that, um, I think the fact that she treated so sensitively and well of people who were on the margins mm. of society emigres, migrants, people who felt displaced for various <coughs> reasons. Um, and I think um, Gary Browning has written an excellent book recently, Why Murdoch Matters, and he says that actually those political aspects of her work are still yeah. really to mm. be mined and explored further. Mm. So um, there's definitely more work to be done in that area, I think. Mm. Yeah. Um, the other area, I think, um, that needs to be explored is her experimentation. She's generally thought of as, as a realist writer, you know, and, and as you took this socio-economic group. Um, so she, she's, she was, her importance, I think, in the link of the British novel lies in the fact that she married two styles. She comes, she take, carries on the tradition of Dickens and Henry James in writing what she calls a journalistic novel. A, a novel about real people living in society and you get the psychological realism of the characters. Um, but she also says, talks about the crystalline novel, which is the modernist novel, more Virginia Woolf style novel. And she marries, she says her best books are where she marries these two styles of novel, the journalistic and the crystalline. And in fact, she says she thought the crystalline was the better of the mm -hmm. two. And we've all spent a lot of time, you see, the, the philosophical, the criticism that takes into account her links with moral philosophy tend to focus on the realism because you're talking about the morals of the characters. If you look at the way she uses symbolism, imagery and myth and experimentation with the novel form, the way she uses paintings in the novel, the way she uses colour, there's a whole new area. It, you, you break, you crack open the novels to new areas of meaning when you crack open <coughs> the literary and critical, critical approaches that you apply to the novels. So I think um, that's another area where Murdoch criticism needs to step up to the plate a little bit and, and, and start seeing her as an experimentalist rather than a realist. Uh, I mean, there's probably a further area in relation to ecological issues as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. Um, you know, her novels... Um, it sounds from, you know, the, perhaps the way we've been talking that they're entirely anthropocentric, but actually she pays great attention to 
non-human, if you like, life in various animals, stones, these sort of things. So she has a great sensitivity towards um, an understanding of the world as, you know, a given, if you like, or um, created. So, um, you know, I think that's another area where a huge amount of work can still be done. May I ask a question? Um, I'm a complete newcomer to Iris Murdoch, which is why I came today to find out more. And from the little bit you said to me, I just get the sense of angst, guilt, religious influences, stroke brainwashing, and I just wondered if you could just tell me a little bit about her, her, her childhood and her, as she was growing up, because all these factors seem to influence how she's writing. Yes, she, she was born in um, Blessington Street in Dublin, <coughs> the only child of, uh, of her parents. Her mother had been training as a singer, but gave it up when her, when her daughter was born. And her father was a civil servant. And really because of the troubles, they left Ireland and when she was one and came to live in London. So she grew up in London entirely. They lived in Chiswick and went back to Ireland for holidays to see cousins and things. But she felt a displaced person, because she felt very strongly Irish, and right to the end, almost the last thing she remembered about herself, when she'd forgotten that she'd written books and things, was that she was Irish, and that was incredibly important to her, and yet she was an exiled Irish woman, and her parents didn't really take that much part in the London Irish scene, they seemed to have been very private individuals that um, didn't socialise. So it was quite an isolated existence from that point of view, and made her very, very close to her parents. She talked about <coughs> it as the perfect trinity of love. Her, she and her parents in this triangle. And they sense that they, she, she has actually said from a feminist point of view that she was lucky not to have had a brother, even though she would have loved to have had one, because had there been a boy, the money for the, that they had would have gone on his education, not hers. Having only the daughter, they spent what they could um, on her education and sent her to the Froebel Demonstration School, which was really avant-garde kind of school, <coughs> from which she got a scholarship to Badminton School in Bristol, which again was a very unusual school indeed, under the grip of um, Beatrice Mary Baker, the renowned headmistress, who really had a huge influence on all her students and thought, in fact, Murdoch was absolutely marvellous. And we're going to be doing some things with Badminton School later in the year, aren't we, yeah. which would be good. Yeah. And she, th from there she won a scholarship to Somerville. Now the school had a lot of um, Jewish children in that were being rescued from Germany at that time when people could see how things were going. So she knew a lot of it. It also had um, Indira Gandhi uh, um, there when she was there. And it had a strong um, ethos. Uh, it was a religious ethos. The motto of the school, I can't quite remember. It's all for one. One for all and all for God, something like that. It, it, it is a religious motto. And the, the children were expected to go to some service on Sundays. And Iris went to the Anglican church, sometimes the Congregations church, and also sometimes to Quaker meetings. Um, the headmistress was a Quaker. But she chose to be confirmed in the Anglican church when she was 15. So she had, and she says she, she learnt to pray as a child and had a strong sense of God. And this gradually became more and more problematised for her as she got older. And so you're right to identify as a push-me-pull-you within her. She's veering towards the church, but in this way she's a bit like Simone Weil, but she can't ever cross over the threshold and come quite inside it. But she can't leave it alone either. And in that way she does stand for um, a certain um, psychological part of the second half of the 20th century after the wars and things when how can we go on believing the grand narratives of Christianity of everything mm -hmm. when we've seen what can happen mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't make the old secure sense anymore 
and people left in droves and the church attendance went down and people, be, it, it became obviously much more common to be atheist or agnostic or secular, it ceased to mean anything to people altogether. And yet, which you get in Larkin's work as well, Philip Larkin, the poet, this sense of something missing and of this yearning for something that's almost gone and this, this, this returning to churches, to the, Hillary sits in the church in a word child and yeah. it's not for him really a religious space now, it's a secular space and yet there's something yeah. and she identifies for us and articulates for us this sense I think a lot of us have of not being inside religion or outside it and not comfortable on either side of the the, the gap really, you know, we, we can't believe it anymore, but we can't quite do without it either. And it's a very uncomfortable liminal space there that she explores. <coughs> it's a lot of personal suffering, psychologically, mm. mentally, um, I don't find writing very well, yes, there was a lot because while she was at Oxford, she, she, got, she then got a scholarship from yeah. Badminton to Somerville to read English, and in the first term she changed to classics. And the, she was there for one year, and in the summer of 39, she was touring the Oxfordshire countryside with a dramatic group called the Magpie Players, having a lovely time putting on these amateur performances in barns and places. And the war broke out in September, and the men went. And the young men that she knew went, and some of them, including a very important young man, Frank Thompson, who was very dear to her, didn't come back. He was tortured and killed in Bulgaria. It had a strange effect. Mary Midgley, there were four women philosophers who were famous from that time. Iris Murdoch herself, her close friend Philippa Foote, who was the year below her at um, Somerville. Mary Midgley, who was then Mary Scrutton, who went to Newcastle and died this autumn. And a woman called Elizabeth Anscombe, who was actually at St Hugh's College reading classics. And those four have been so influential on philosophy in the 20th century. And people have been asking recently, and there's a whole group devoted to the study of it, called In Parenthesis, why? Were these four women so empowered and stayed so vocal and so strong throughout their lives, which hasn't really happened again since. And Mary Midgley has said it was the men went away mm -hmm. and their voices were heard for the first time and they got used to having their voices heard mm -hmm. and they didn't stop talking for the rest of their lives. <laughs> and then the men came back and all the women shut up again, like, like I'm not at the moment. Um, and then after the war, she, she had a lot of different relationships which didn't work out. I mean, she wasn't an easy person and people were very attractive. So people would get engaged to her and then realise she'd actually be impossible to live with and break <laughs> off the engagement. So there was a lot of pain and she was sort all the other three women get married and she was bridesmaid at Mary Midgley's wedding, the last one to get married, and that kind of rubbed salt into the wound. And she really thought she would never find anybody she could be with. And she loved a man called Franz Steiner, an anthropologist, whose family had all died in uh, concentration camps in Germany. He was Jewish. And he died in his 40s of a heart attack. So she lost him as well. So there was a huge amount of personal suffering before she was 36, 37, before she married John Bailey. So, and she'd had a, a lot of personal experiences, and she'd behaved badly and upset people and hurt people and felt deep remorse mm. for that and, you know, really castigated herself over her own bad behaviour. So th there's a wealth of, of personal suffering experience in into it. She, she was enough. very attracted to it, yeah. and one of her best yeah. friends at Oxford, Lisa <laughs> Glasgow, became Sister Marion in which convent? Uh, Stanbrook Abbey. Stanbrook Abbey, and she used to go and visit her there, and they kept up a correspondence yeah. all the way through. Yeah. Although she was also she angry with her. Herself, you know, yes. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much. Yeah. I think she did also visit Maureen Abbey. Yes, she yes. did. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
uh, for people who, as Francis has just described, could neither live out, you know, haunted by spirituality, haunted by the, the desire for God, but, you know, couldn't actually subscribe, be a paid-up member. So she constructs a neo-theology where you construct your own kind of religious mm -hmm. rituals. People often go into churches, as Francis said, art galleries serve. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a whole kind of practical way that you can dedicate your life to some kind of spiritual reality. I mean, by the time you get to the end of the novels, there's, um, there's flying saucers appearing, mm -hmm. characters can move objects. Um, she, mm -hmm. I think she profoundly believed in a spiritual mm -hmm. entity. And mm -hmm. yeah. um, Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, from a theological perspective, this is very much adhere to what was the demythologizing of the yes. time, so people like um, Don Cupid and so mm. on, who pursued that line theologically, and yet, as both um, Anne and Francis have been saying, there was always that sense of regret. So I've got a little quote here from six years before she died, where she was actually um, giving an address to Kingston University humanities graduate, and she says, the erosion of belief in Christianity due to scepticism over its miraculous doctrines, undermines a source of virtue and love. So it's quite interesting to see that even, you know, towards the end, she was still conflicted, really, yeah. in that area. Quite interesting. I was there, sat, oh, on, was sat there. on the stage uh, when she gave that talk, and there were several hundreds of students absolutely gripped. She had enormous presence. Um, I, I mean, I've sat, I've sat in more graduation ceremonies than I ever want to remember. <laughs> I've sat where one very famous academic spoke so long and so boringly that everybody got up and walked out. <laughs> I won't mention the name because it's, it's, it's a very famous person. And I've been there when, um, oh, Richard Attenborough gave a talk and made everyone, everyone weep. Mm. But the one person that made everyone silent... And, and gripped, and she didn't speak for long. It's a very short mm -hmm. speech. She stood at the front of the stage, and it's, it, you know, it's giving me the goosebumps, and she commanded that space and spoke so movingly, and she ended by saying to the students, and we who wave you onward say, good luck. Mm -hmm. And we were all absolutely enthralled mm -hmm. by her. And, and that's that stature and I think mm -hmm. this spirituality that she carried with her, um, I mean, a lot of people make fun of this. There was, there's a, there's one of my uh, colleagues at uh, Kingston used to do this genuflect as I walked past. Are you going to kiss the hem of the gown now? <laughs> <laughs> um, that sort of thing. But it, was, it also says something quite interesting and real about being in her presence, mm -hmm. that it was uh, magical. In, in some way, she had that aura about her. And now, I suppose now that we've moved on to think about the, the last years of her life, um, I suppose we also think about the books that John Bailey wrote, um, the film that was produced, obviously the Oscar-winning film by Richard Eyre, um, because she did, be she did become, uh, you know, just before and then after her death, a, a, you know, supposed to go for Alzheimer's. It did, in, you know, in, in one sense, a very good thing to highlight the, you know, the ravages of, of, of that awful illness. But on the other, of course, um, it really does, you know, put her fiction, and indeed her philosophy as well, it put it in the shade for yes, a very long yeah. time in the public consciousness, yeah. and, um, and, and was quite damaging in that way. So I wonder, wonder what, what thoughts... But you asked are. just now, yeah. 
us to look back 20 years and think how we'd felt when she'd died, and we all went silent for a moment. I, I think it was how I felt about her dying was obscured by those books, yes, because yeah. I was so yes. caught up in what he was saying that, in fact, her death kind of got hidden somehow, mm. in a strange yes, way. Yes. She sort of disappeared. It was, it was eclipsed by yes. these claims about her promiscuity, which is a word that really will irritate me. Um, she was not promiscuous. She was not promiscuous. She had many lovers. Um, I actually preempted this, and I, I, I went this morning <laughs> and looked up the, the definition of promiscuity <laughs> as undiscriminating, characterised by casual or indiscriminate changes of sexual partner. The number of sexual partners she had would probably pale into insignificance by many what you know young people have today. Um, she didn't have casual sex. Most of her sexual partners were people she'd known for years. Mm -hmm. um, and she did it with integrity. Her marriage was completely open. There was no deceit. She may have been protective of John and you know she wouldn't maybe tell him everything about her life. Um, I asked uh, Andy Bailey, John Bailey's uh, second wife about this and said, could you clear this up just once and for all? Um, I said, there seems from the letters to be some duplicity going on. And uh, I said, did, you know, did she hide things from John? And she said, well, why would she tell him? It was unconditional love. He would have forgiven her. She knew that he would have forgiven her. Why would she tell him? So um, this idea that came up, I think, with Conradi's biography, and it was sensationalised in the Daily Mail and uh, that she was promiscuous. Um, she didn't lose her virginity until she was 23. And, you know, she had a number of male and female lovers, although I am still not sure um, about the extent of the relationship. She said she liked to indulge in something that she called um, diffused eroticism. <laughs> uh, and I think a lot of the people that we think she probably had sexual relationships, she may not have done at all. Um, so I think it's a lot more complex, and I think you're absolutely right. All this, this idea of her as being racy, promiscuous, and deceitful in some ways, um, really eclipsed what should have been a much more scholarly, uh, you know, attention to her, her work. And it was unfortunate. And the film didn't help either, although it is a hugely made film. Um, very well shot with moving performances by people. Um, it's almost just impossible to film the life of the mind. Yes. Mm. And yes. it can't be done. You've got Judy Dench sort of sitting scribbling at a desk, but that's it's not giving you anything. So I think it, it did some more obscuring and some more yes. eclipsing, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it didn't. Sorry. sorry, no, no, please carry no, on. No, no, no. I was only going to say that I think um, a lot of the sort of unfortunate aspects. Um, of what was going on, as just described by Anne, was a kind of um, counterweight to an initial appraisal of Murdoch yes. and Saint Iris. Yes. Mm. Yes. You know, there yes. was a lot yes. about her, you know, her pursuit of unselfing and how, you know, she pursued ideas about um, detachment and about attention to the other. And you know, many students came back and said, "Oh, you know, she paid." complete attention to me and I felt mm. wonderfully encouraged by her. So there was almost this kind of 
put on a pedestal kind yes, of image, yes. and then it was sort of rather knocked off by the kind of perhaps more realistic accounts. But I think now we're in a sort of position where we can look back on that and say, well, okay, you know, she was a human person who had her ways, um, but actually her legacy is just as important mm. as, as mm. anything. And, and you know, that's what makes so much of the lot. She is brilliant on sexual obsession. Mm. Mm. And she knows what it feels like. She's been there, she's experienced mm. it. And I think she, she was brilliant on trauma. Mm. Um, and the trauma of being in, in your middle life, uh, having been happily married for many years, and suddenly your life is turned completely upside down because you have fallen in love with the wrong person at the wrong time. And barring uh, acts of God and <coughs> terrible events in somebody's life, that is probably the most traumatic experience in many people's lives. And I think she understood this. And I think this is what, um, certainly when I've taught groups of mature students, you know, they would be coming in thinking, oh my God, how could she know so much about me? Mm. You know. mm -hmm. Peter Conradi is bringing out um, a, a, a kind of sort of autobiographical mm -hmm. memoir, an account of his life <coughs> called Family Business in June this year. And he's reflecting in that on what it was like writing the biography so quickly after and so close to her. And now that he's got 20 years detachment and, and distance from it, he can see the difficulties that he has and he explores you know, how hard it was to be that close and to be writing at that time. So that'll be quite interesting to see what he has to say about that. But he used to talk a lot to her about Buddhism because he, he followed Buddhism after that. And she got quite irritated by some of it. They had some quite good arguments. But I was interested to see that um, there's a Buddhist concept called uh, situations as teachers. The situation is what teaches you, not a person. And she warmed to that a lot. And it seems to me that this is often what she gives us in the novel. Mm. She kind of sets up a, like a, 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 a laboratory experiment. You know, if this moral dilemma occurs in this situation, what will people learn or fail to learn from that? And, and how will they react? It's a completely different approach to creating a novel from something like Virginia mm. Woolf, who is mm. trying to explore what it's like to be conscious and floating through a day and things. That's very badly put. But Murdoch doesn't do that at all. She, she sets up, she says um, her, her novels usually began with two or three characters and, and an idea of something that would happen to them. So she'll start, say, The Good Apprentice with a young man who's fallen out of a window while he's drugged. And how is the person who gave him the sandwich and then left him going to live with himself for the rest of his life now? He didn't mean to do it, but it's happened and the boy's dead and won't ever come back. And how do you live with yourself after that? And she sets up these situations and then she sees... And also, in that one, this is The Good Apprentice I'm talking about, what are the other people around him, his father, brother, family, friends, going to do with him as well, now that he's destroyed himself at 20 by making this happen? How are they going to react? And what has society, culture, got to offer him now? The church is gone. There is no God to offer him forgiveness anymore. Who does he say sorry to? Where does he get forgiveness from? It starts with, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned, the words from the old prayers. But they, they don't apply anymore. And he's looking for somebody who will forgive him. And how, how do you do that in a sort of post-Christian world? So she often sets up these situations that then act as teachers. And I, I think that's going to be a fascinating thing to explore as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I just want to move on just briefly to this um, little piece from Susan Mill. So this was in the New York Times. 
There's been quite a lot published in the last few weeks. Yeah. Oh, good. That's the piece I was talking about. Yeah. Oh, that, that's useful. That we've got it up there. Um, so this is Susan Mills. She, she's a, um, a creative writer in in, um, in New York. She's written in, in praise of Iris Murdoch, talking about her own response to, um, to finding a box of Iris Murdochs on a shelf in a house in Italy when she went on holiday as a as a, uh, as a young woman. And she and this is at the end. This is at the end of her piece in New York. So there's been quite a lot in um, in the Paris Review and in, in other. Uh, works, and indeed there'll be quite more, um, some more to come. She said, I, I had, I think, finally been introduced to the private world of reading that many people inhabit, a dream state I now regard as a portal to the act of breathing life into fictional worlds of one's own. That first Murdoch novel seemed like a belief system transform, tra transformed into story, given to me to make of it what I wanted on my own. Her novels were that summer an introduction to the acceptability of strangeness, the beauty found outside shared experience, and most of all, an introduction to the glorious activity of reading. And I think that's a beautiful, yeah. a beautiful final paragraph. From uh, you, you can tell this, you, you can tell this this uh, this writer is also a novelist. I think almost a poet. There. Um, I, I suppose in the last couple of minutes, um, just I suppose to reflect on that and our own reading of where where we are now in the last. In, I suppose to if we can sum up for, in two minutes for each of us. <laughs> I, 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 really, I really think she's coming back. Yeah, I, I yes, really, well. really do. Um, Lisa and I bumped into a student from undergraduate student from Exeter University in the archive. She's got to write a dissertation for her final year. She's chosen Iris Murdoch. She obviously found out there was an archive and made an appointment to come and look at it. So we introduced ourselves and talked to her. She didn't know there was an Iris Murdoch Society or a research centre. I've now told her. <laughs> she didn't know about the review. She was just working on Iris Murdoch at the age of 20 alone. She just loved her. And she hadn't been brought to her by any of this at all. And I think there are more, as I started with these people in Italy and Turkey that are saying these things, there are more and more people out there who are finding Iris Murdoch for themselves. And young people, that's the marvellous thing as well, yeah. the batons being handed down the generation. And they're reading her, as you say, quite differently yes. than yes. we did reading her yes. as the books came out. But I really think she's coming back yeah. and the next generation is finding her. Absolutely. And, and um, obviously I, I teach her um, across the years and across, in, into postgraduate level and beyond. And next year, uh, uh, next week even, and I, yeah. we're, we're going to um, read the uh, the unicorn, unicorn with with um, my my first year students. Some of whom are here now, so we're, yeah. we're looking forward to that. Maybe I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, maybe a couple of them <laughs> might, might have questions in a minute. Um, Margaret, your your right, your well, sort of summation. Just to sum up, a little thing I found: um, Eve Patton, who I don't know if she's still at Trinity College Dublin, but anyway, she she wrote um, a review of um, the Iris, a memoir by John Bailey in 2002, in which she said, Iris Murdoch's legacy is, in the end, her philosophy of love. And I would suggest that for Iris Murdoch, where philosophy falls short is when it fails to think love. All her critique of philosophy was to do with the fact that it, it failed to think love. And, and that, I think, she was way ahead mm -hmm. of people like Jean-Luc Marion, who um, you know, I admire hugely, a Catholic theologian um, and phenomenologist. But if you read his um, Phénomène Erotique, which I don't think has been translated into English, but anyway, he gives some sort of case studies about you know, the phenomenology of love. And they're so poor and thin compared to anything that you'd find in an Iris Murdoch um, novel. And I just think that this is an area which will just go on giving mm. for decades to come. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read my favourite quotation from Iris Murdoch. Um, because I think that um, we want to get more young people. We want to get it on the A-level syllabus. Uh, we want to get... Uh, we want to get 
yeah, we want to get young people interested because she does change people's lives, young people's lives, and I think there is a wisdom there that is so valuable, more so now than possibly ever before for mankind out there. There is wisdom. Uh, so this is my favourite quotation from Bradley Pearson in The Black Prince, who's behaved quite shamefully badly, uh, ends up in prison dying of cancer and looks back on his life and tries to learn something from it. And this is what he says. There are no spare, unrecorded, encapsulated moments in which we can behave anyhow and then expect to resume life where we left off. The wicked regard time as discontinuous. The wicked dull their sense of natural causality. The good feel being as a total dense mesh of tiny interconnections. My lightest whim can affect the whole future. Okay. We won't. <laughs> My thanks to the panel for, I think, I, I, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Well, thanks for coming. I hope you've really enjoyed the, uh, enjoyed the session. What we shall do, because we've uh, obviously been talking for about an hour or so, we'll take a five-minute break so you can uh, refresh yourselves with tea, coffee at the back. Then we'll come back and then we'll take, um, then we'll have questions for about half an hour or so. Um, so, uh, could I just ask a question? Because I've got to go. In yes, very, yeah, of course. Um, I'm a lecturer here, but in a very different discipline, in dance. <laughs> yes. Often, I send my students off to read a novel because I think it does so many wonderful things for them. So now I'm on a mission to send them off to read an Irish Merlin novel. Excellent. Which would you recommend for dance students who don't necessarily read a lot of novels? <laughs> I, 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 I would have changed my mind. I would have said three weeks ago, a completely different novel, but now I would say a fairly honourable defeat. <laughs> yeah, or the, or I, I, I probably like, the unicorn is very accessible. The bell is very accessible. So yeah, okay. So we'll have a few minutes to uh, refresh ourselves. Do come back to the bookstall, and then we shall come back in a few minutes' time uh, for questions. No, I think it's gone half eleven. I, I yeah, you're much stopped. I want to stop. Yeah, I want to stop. Tiffany, what? Oh, no.